energy. So this guy in the fantasy baseball chat is just ripping me. He's calling me names for how I handled my team. Buddy, you had 20 weeks for your own team to play better. Don't be mad at me. The passion. Mac Jones is fighting not just for his Patriots job, but he very well may be fighting for his NFL future. The opinions on all your favorite teams. For the Red Sox, it can't always be about next year. It can't always be about down the road. Where's the team that battles for now? This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM, FM, and WDEBradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Thursday here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEB AM and FM and WDEBradio.com. No Red Sox baseball today, so we've got a full show all 90 minutes. Boy, do we need it. We're going to talk to Buster Olney of ESPN about the Red Sox and their future without High and Bloom coming up at 545. We are also going to talk about the Patriots a lot today. Our six-pack of NFL questions are going to be answered. I'm also promising you we're going to have some zaniness today as well. So for the you need all 90 minutes of all sports and only sports and no fun crew, I'm here to tell you you're going to be a little bit upset today. Bear with us. Buster's coming at 545. He'll get the show off the, on, back on the rails because I have a feeling it's going to go off it right here at the beginning. I'm here. Danny's here. The text line's here, 802-585-3026. Again, the We Want Sports and Sports Only crew, bear with us. It's coming. Buster, Patriots talk, six-pack of NFL questions. But i got to get to it right off the top here. Danny, did you do your homework last night? Did you did you drive by last night? Well, you, last night would have been dark. This morning, did you drive by and see the uh, – the, the little Fenway experience? You're going to be disappointed in me, Brady. Why? Okay, I told you, now listen, I told you you had until Friday. So you do have another day to do this. But why did you not do it this morning? So what, for, First what? of all, why can't this be a weekend thing? Because you live like four minutes from it. I'm not asking you to drive to Newport. If this was like, hey, Danny, you got to go see this thing in Plattsburgh, I'd be like, okay, take a whole day to do it and take some time. The, the Travis Roy Field is practically your neighbor. Fair. Fair. So why does it need to be a weekend thing? You don't need eight hours to get this done. You need like eight minutes. You drive these roads every day. Okay, so did you realize uh, our boss is a little Fenway Hall of Famer? I did. Corm is a little Fenway Hall of Famer. So what does that have to do with your inability to go see the facility? Does he want to take you on a tour and show you where he hit his famous home run? Well, no, but so he he had a good point today. Um, saying that you might have been setting me up to get arrested for trespassing. What do you mean? I'm not gonna, I, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. He told you that I was setting you up to get arrested? There's always a possibility, right? Private property. All I said, I didn't say get out. And, I told you specifically, you can't get out and walk around the grounds, but you could drive up to the massive grass parking lot and look at Little Fenway from up high. I'm not trying to get you arrested. Never know. Have you ever been arrested? I have not been arrested. You have a story, have you don't ever, you? You have a story. I have you ever had any close calls? Not, not, not really. No. So I had a close call where I was very, very nervous in college. Um, I was pick. I had a baseball. It was a Friday night. I had a baseball game on Saturday, so I wasn't out, you know, drinking or anything like that. But all my roommates were because none of the, they weren't baseball players. So my roommates go out drinking and. I told them I'd come and pick them up, you know, provided they're 
like a reasonable time because I obviously had to get up early to go leave for the baseball game or have the baseball game at home or whatever it was. So they're like, fine. So like they call me at midnight, no big deal. I didn't have a car at this time, so my roommate who I was going to pick up let me use his car. I had never driven whatever brand of car he had. So whatever it was, I think it was like a Ultima or something. It was a perfectly fine car, but I had never driven a car like this before. So he tell, he leaves me the keys, I go pick him up, and then I get pulled over. I'm like, what is going on? And so, you know, it's Friday night in a college town, so the cops are out. They're looking for stuff. And the cop comes to me and she goes, do you know why I pulled you over? I go, no, ma'am, I don't. I'm sorry. She goes, well, your lights aren't on. Well, it's because I'd never driven this car before, and I, it, I had, like, the daytime running lights on, but not the full-blown lights on. So it took us a while together to figure out where the lights were on this car. So that was my first close call back in college. And I've told this story on other airwaves before. I will tell it to you briefly now. And for the bosses that are listening, understand that I'm innocent. Understand you hired a good person. But I did get arrested in the state of Vermont once. And the police were actually wrong. The police were wrong. And I did get arrested in the state of Vermont once, though. I won't tell you where. I won't tell you what town. I won't tell you the officer's name. But I did get arrested once in the state of Vermont. And then the police had to admit fault in, in arresting me. This this truly happened, like, five years ago. I like I... I talk about this story a lot with friends. I almost never talk about this story on the air because I don't want people getting the wrong idea. But since they think I'm setting you up to get arrested, I can at least tell you at the time I actually got arrested and it was all for nothing. Have I told you this story, Danny? I don't believe so. No, I'm fascinated, about, though. About five years ago, I got asked to come speak at my college, right, in Oswego. So we're like five hours away from Vermont. And... I left, it was like a weekday thing, you know, because it was a part of the school day. It was like speaking a career day for the communication students. And so they invited me back to speak. So uh, I leave on like a Tuesday, get there Tuesday night, like 10 o'clock at night, and then I have to take off work on Wednesday. And this is before I worked at WDEV. I worked at a different station. And uh, let me see. So the thing goes all day Wednesday, right? Like goes until like 6 o'clock at night. I meet a buddy in Oswego at, like, 7 o'clock at night. We have one beer together. Truthfully, that's it. One beer at my old college haunts. He drove up from Syracuse about an hour away, met me. We shot the blank for a while, watched playoff baseball, had one beer. I leave Oswego at 8 o'clock. I'm there for, like, an hour at this bar with my buddy. And then so I'm driving back to Oswego. This is in late October, so it's it's getting darker earlier. But it's not pitch black, you know. Well, it's pitch black by the time I'm leaving. So I know I'm not going to get back to Vermont until, like, 1 a.m. So, like, 11.30 rolls around. I am in Vermont. I'm in the borders, but not much over the borders. And it's pitch black. I'm in a small town, windy roads. I'm not feeling that great. Like, I, this, this is pre-COVID and stuff like that. So, like, if you had a cold, you wouldn't be too worried about it. You kind of would have just gone about your day. So as I'm driving now, I'm kind of hacking up a lung. So I go around a turn in this small town. It's pitch black. And I'm hacking up a lung. So I definitely swerved a little bit. Like, I, I admit to that. I swerved a little bit, went over this windy road on the double yellow line. I saw the police officer. Like, I knew she was there. This was not like they caught me doing 50 into 25. This wasn't that. I saw her. I knew the car was there. I thought nothing of it. As I go around the curve, I'm hacking up a lung. Two minutes go by. She pulls up behind me, pulls me over. And she's like, do you know why I pulled you over? No. Same as before. No, ma'am. No, I don't. She goes, well, you cross the double yellow line. Oh, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Like, I didn't mean to. Like, you know, I'm coming back from far away. I've been on the road for a while. You know, simple mistake. 
She goes, she told me, she said, I think you're drunk. I think you're drunk. And because, now I don't have a lot of experience dealing with police officers and stuff like that. I'm just telling her the truth. The truth is the truth, right? I, look, I'm coming from five hours away. I've been in the car for a while. i got an hour and a half or so left to go on my drive, maybe an hour or so at this point in my drive left. And I had one beer four hours ago with my buddy. That was it. And <laughs> so she's like, yeah, I don't, I don't believe that. So she asked me. So I now I'm kind of telling her, like, what's happened. Like, I have my career day. I'm with my buddy. I've told her I, I don't feel that great. I have a cough. Maybe I just cough, hacked up a lung. So she's searching for it. So she asked me because she searched the car. And, like, I, I know I'm innocent. So I'm like, yeah, no problem. And, you know, I don't know if everybody would say go ahead and search the car. But I literally had nothing to hide. So searches the car, finds nothing, right? She's looking for drugs or alcohol, nothing there. So she doesn't find that. Then she asked me if I've taken cough syrup for my cough because she hasn't found anything, so she thinks I'm under the influence. I'm like, well, no, I didn't take cough syrup. I kind of wish that I had. Maybe I wouldn't have this thing. But, no, that's not causing me to be a bad driver or be disoriented or whatever you think I am. So then she goes, you say you had one beer? Yeah, one beer. She goes, do you mind if I give you a breathalyzer? No, I don't. I blew a 0.0, Danny, a 0.0, okay? She's still not satisfied. She still thinks that because I crossed the yellow line, she still thinks that I'm under the influence of something. She searched the car. She's given me the breathalyzer. I've done the 0.0 thing. Nothing. So now I think she's a little irritated that she's pulled me over and hasn't found something. So then we start doing these, like, eye tests. Like, I don't know if you've ever been given a sobriety test. She's running the finger over and follow my eyes or follow my finger with your eyes and things like that. So now it's like 1130 at night, midnight. It's pitch black. I've been in the car for a while. I'm probably a little bit tired. I'm also a little bit irritated. I'm not mean. I'm not combative. I'm just a little bit irritated that this is happening because I know I'm innocent. So I don't do well, I guess, on the on the eye test. And then she does another test where, you know, it's the old famous one, you know, walk on the line or whatever or touch your finger or whatever, touch your finger to your ABC's nose. ABC's backwards. Stuff like that. And I guess I didn't do well at that either. Mind you, it's cold. It's October. I'm in a T-shirt. It's raining. And we're on a hill by the way, so my balance isn't all that great on this thing. So now I'm screwing up all the tests. Now I'm nervous. Now I'm irritated. Now it's late at night. She still can't find anything wrong, though. Calls over the other police officer, has him do a test. He says I don't do well. They put me in cuffs. They put me in the cuffs in the car and and read me the rights, everything. Like, seriously, like I had my rights read to me. And takes me up to the station and... Um, takes me up to the station, and I'm in the cell. I'm actually in the cell for like a period of like a half an hour. And she's asking me the same questions again. Have you been drinking? Did you take cough syrup? I'm like, no, 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 no. We did this already. And she's like, you know, we need to get a blood sample done. We think you've had drugs in your system because they haven't found alcohol. We think you have drugs in your system. You have three days to get a lawyer, and you can meet me at, the, you know, we can do it at this hospital. I'm like, no, no, no. I don't need any of that. I'll waive whatever legal right I have. Let's go do this right now. That's how confident I am that I'm innocent. And she's kind of taken aback by that. Like, you really want to waive that stuff? I'm like, yes, because I'm innocent. I've been telling you the truth all along. I'm telling you the truth now. So she, she, I'm in a dark room now for like a half an hour. Now it's like 1 in the morning. We do the same test we were doing outside at 1130. Now we're inside in a dark room at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm doing bad at them again. I'm like, look, you thought I was tired maybe. I thought I was tired an hour and a half ago. You th- Like, am I going to be better at these things after being in a dark room, diluting my eyes, and it's, it's dilating my eyes, and it's 1 o'clock in the morning now? 
So I do bad at them again. And finally, we come to this conclusion. She comes to this conclusion. Over the course of our talking for now a period of like 90 minutes, Danny, you were not an intern with me when this happened before, but there was a time where I had a previous radio show that started at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. At like 3.59, I'm running into the studio, and I had a li- there was a little tiny staircase in the studio. I hit my head. Like I jumped off the stairs, I hit my head on the ceiling. Being six foot five, hitting low-hanging ceilings is something I've done frequently in my life. But I'm running around the studio, and I hit my head. And my head was bleeding. I missed the first segment of that show because my head was bleeding. I'm sitting, I sat that entire show doing it with a, uh, with a, a towel on my head to stop the blood. So after the show ended, I went to the emergency room. I ended up with three stitches. Nothing crazy. Three measly stitches. So I tell the, the, I've told the officer this story at some point throughout the night, and she goes, so finally, after all this time, she hasn't found anything wrong. Passed the breathalyzer test perfectly, no, doesn't find anything, I'm waving my rights to go do blood tests now. She goes to me, you said you hit your head a while back, right? I go, yeah, about a month ago. She goes, yeah, I bet you had a concussion and you need to get that taken out, t- or t- uh, checked out, you're free to leave. So because she couldn't find anything wrong, she retroactively just blamed my head injury, and this was her way of getting, you know, of probably covering her own backside about having detained me for this long with nothing wrong. It's a great story that I love to tell at cocktail parties. I just don't tell on the radio very often. But that is the story about how I got arrested. It's like the worst cops episode ever. And I'm disappointed not one person on the text line has responded to my story. I've held that story back for two years. Like, I, I don't tell that story ever because I feel like it makes me look bad. And I don't want it to reflect bad on the station. If the boss is listening, I hope you're laughing instead of being like, oh, my God, what are you doing? But um, I, I, I hold that story in for two years, and nobody's, nobody responds to that? I got more stuff on on my ability to sand and paint a table yesterday than I did on this police arrest story. Glennon Brookfield says that's a crazy story, Brady. At least someone acknowledges it. It was a crazy story, and it was a crazy night. Again, and then, so she goes to me, hey, uh, now it's late. You're probably tired. She dropped me off at the parking ride nearest to where I was. And she goes, you should probably sleep for a couple hours now so you're not driving tired further. So I'm sleeping in the parking, parking ride at like three in the morning now at this, in this town, you know, before I can get back to, you know, where I lived at the time in Essex. Uh, Phil in Middlesex says, loved the story. Thank you. Again, it's been two, I've been holding this in for two years for you people, waiting for the perfect time to bring it out, and this seemed like the perfect time. Danny, I'm not trying to get you arrested. I've been there. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I just want you to be able to go and see the Travis Roy field. That's it. The, uh, well, now it's not Travis Roy field. It's the uh, Little Fenway, Little Essex, or uh, Little Wrigley, Little Field of Dreams. But the Travis Roy Foundation, I believe, owns it. So it is great. And no, I don't want you to get arrested. That's it. Case closed. That's my story. Go see the field. You have until tomorrow to do it. Okay. All right. I see. I told you the first 15 minutes of the show we're going to get zany. It's not even the, the that's not even the way I thought they were going to get zany. Bob says Brady, you should have told them to to screw off and get a lawyer. My I got good friends who are cops. Like well, my best friend from high school is a cop. I'm not in the business of telling off cops. I also didn't think it was going to go this far. Like, I kind of thought we were just going to see that I was innocent and let me go. 
So I got more irritated as the night went on. But at the beginning, I didn't think much of it. Like, I wasn't offended at the beginning of the night because I knew I was innocent. It was just a case, I think, of midnight in a small town, you know, looking for something, looking for trouble. And they thought they had found trouble with me, but they didn't. All right. I told you, the first 15 minutes we're going to get zany. But, again, I had a different vision of where they were going to go. I had other stories I was going to tell Danny. Maybe we'll do that in the 6 o'clock hour. Now, for the crew who only wants sports all the time, which is usually me, just not today, let's go out to the phone line and bring on Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider. Buster is always with us on a Thursday and is always with us at 545. The Red Sox are off today, so unfettered access to butter uh, to uh, to Buster. So, uh Okay, Danny tells me we don't have Buster just yet on the phone line. Not just yet, but uh, Danny, let me know when Buster comes on because we got to get to Buster here. I want we got him locked in. All right, we got him. Thank you, Buster. How are you? I'm doing great. What's going on, Brady? Lots happened in the last seven days since we spoke. The Red Sox fire high and bloom. I guess first off, were you surprised by it and or by the timing of it? Uh, I was not necessarily surprised by it. I mean, you and I had been talking about it the whole summer, right, yeah. about the question of whether or not they were going to move on from him. Um, you know, the, the timing was a little strange to me because uh, you and I talked in June about, you know, the rumblings within the organization that they weren't happy. Ownership wasn't happy with the direction of the team. Um, and if that, that was, in fact, where it stood, then why wouldn't you pull the trigger on that before the trade deadline? Uh, you know, especially after what happened in 2022 uh, with the team sort of on the fence to buy or sell in 2023. Um, I, I don't understand why they didn't make the move back in, in early in the year and, and give somebody else a chance to make a trade. Because, look, the, you know, the Heim is, as you saw with the response uh, from people, was universally liked. He was respected for how he treated people. And those are really valuable things. But there was also, as we've talked about many times, the question of whether or not his sense of urgency uh, matched the cities. And he had a, he has a difficult time, according to a lot of his peers, making trades because mm. uh, he focuses a lot on value. He doesn't want to give away value. He's like a careful poker player. And given that dynamic, which the Red Sox are certainly aware of at this point, why wouldn't you have wanted somebody else to make those moves? But, you know, this is where we are. They're in the market right now. They're out there talking to people, and I assume that whoever they get, it's going to be someone with experience because it would make no sense to go from Hein Bloom to a first-time general manager. You know, I was going to ask you a question along those lines, and we have kind of danced around this for a couple of months now. But the thing that bothers me in general about the Red Sox is that they don't seem to commit to any plan for very long. Ben Sherrington comes in, gets told to rebuild the farm system right. and save money, and then he gets canned, has an expiration date. Dave Dombrowski goes the other way, wins, and then gets told his way is not good enough, and he gets canned. High and Bloom, same as Ben Sherrington. So it feels like this job has an expiration date to it, and it's part of this endless cycle. Is that going to scare off candidates? No, because it's an incredible opportunity. Now, it might scare off, like, the elite guys, uh, you know, and, and we saw that with Billy Bean initially back in, you know, 20 years ago. We had the opportunity to go to the Red Sox, but the Boston market is daunting. And if you're experienced uh, and you've gotten your, you are one of the elite guys, you don't necessarily have to go for that. But if you're a, you know, someone of, of uh, mid-level accomplishment in the game, 
having the opportunity to go to Boston and compete with that payroll, a team with that history, I, I don't know a lot of people who would be able to turn that down. Um, so it, it uh, uh, you know, it will be interesting. I do, and and I tend to think of the, you know, the sort of the boomeranging back and forth of ownership is actually a reflection of the fans. Hmm. I think that, the, you know, that in the end, it's the fans' impatience uh, and, you know, their demonstrative feelings about where they think the team is that has led to some of these changes. I think in the case of Heim, um, I think specifically that, it, it, you know, they saw the empty seats. They saw that, uh, as you know, some of the tickets were going on, on these uh, secondary markets for a dollar yeah. to Fenway Park to games at the end of the year. And I think that had a lot to do with this decision. But you set social media ablaze last Thursday after this happened by asking the question about could Alex Cora move into the front office. And I've thought about this over the last week, and I think Alex Cora wants to still manage, but I also think the job security for him is much greater if he goes into the front office because he does seem to be a guy who can transcend what I just mentioned, and he's kind of part of the Red Sox family. That The job security there seems to be better than – being, you know, staying as manager and getting a new GM to come who inherits you because we know how that dynamic goes. Where do you stand a week later after your tweet on the idea of Cora ascending? Yeah, um, I think it, and I, and it's interesting, and I have not, you know, made calls in the last 72 hours to follow up on, on this part, but I did find it interesting that the wording, uh, of everyone was, yeah, Alex will continue as the manager. And, that doesn't necessarily preclude him from having a greater role in baseball operations. Mm. Um, and I'm not, and I just want to speculate here. I think you absolutely could have a, someone be a manager and oversee baseball operations as long as you were to get the appropriate help for that person in the front office. In other words, if you could, you could have Alex oversee the whole baseball ops and, and uh, while managing the team but have someone else be making the calls to other teams uh, about possible trades and then have Alex be the one who makes the decision about whether to do it. You know, have Alex be the one to, to talk about, uh, you know, how you're going to structure your payroll. I think he's talented enough to do that. I think he's a really special baseball mind. Um, and, and, you know, given some of the alternatives that I've seen out there speculated upon as possible next Red Sox DMs, I think they should be talking mm. about it about possibly getting Alex the help that he needs in order to run baseball ops. Buster Olney, ESPN MLB Insider, with us here on the Brady Farkas Show on this Thursday, WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. Let's move off Alex Cora. One of the names we've heard out there who's popular is Mike Hazen. He's, the, I believe, yeah. the general manager of the Diamondbacks, but he comes from the Red Sox. That's how he got his start and been in Boston for a number of years. It certainly seems like a logical connection. Is that a guy who makes sense? The Diamondbacks look pretty good right now, so he seems to be doing a good job out there. Yeah, I think he, uh, probably all things being equal, if there were no strings attached, I think he would be the number one choice because he's done that job. He's highly success, successful. I think he probably, you know, if you were to do a vote of general managers, he would be in the top six or seven in the game. Um, and with his pedigrees and natural fit for the Red Sox, but he's under contract with the Diamondbacks through 2024 and the Diamondbacks also hold a club option for 2025. So the Red Sox can't talk to him unless the Diamondbacks give permission. I do think that, uh, you know, Ken Kendrick who owns the Diamondbacks probably should look into the future and ask himself the question, look, 
when Mike's contract is set to expire, uh, am I going to be willing to pay him seven to ten million dollars a year, which is the going rate for guys at Mike's level? Uh, and if the answer is no, then I do think it now might be the time where the Diamondbacks can pivot because their baseball ops is in excellent condition, given the work that uh, you know that Mike has done over there. Amiel Sade, uh, who was his assistant general manager, also came from the Red Sox, could move up and be a lot cheaper than Mike would be, and maybe that fits the Diamondbacks' uh, payroll situation and what they want to pay their front office people. And you know what? That would work out great for the Red Sox. Yes, if it, that's what Mike wants. At the very least, Mike is this situation with the Red Sox will give Mike some leverage in talking with the Diamondbacks about a possible extension. We're going to talk about all of this when we get Buster off the phone. I'm already formulating reactions here to the things that Buster has said. Buster, I do want to ask you about baseball at large right now. We are about 10 games to play left here in the regular season. There's still a lot to be decided, right? The number one overall seeds in the playoff races in each league still up for grabs. We've also got the AL West race, which is historically close. The AL wild card race is close. The NL wild card race is close. What is intriguing you most overall down the stretch here? Well, I'm going to be speaking close to your heart, and that is the, the steel cage match that we're going to see between the Rangers and the Mariners over the next two weekends. You know, there are essentially four teams battling for three spots in the American League, but it does feel like that not the Rangers and Mariners, because they play each other seven times in the last ten games, only one of those teams probably is going to survive. That's yep. what you would. It feels like that that makes sense. So that's going to be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, maybe excruciating for you as yes. a Mariners yes. fan, um, but it, it's going to be that's going to be interesting. And I think the Cubs are an interesting test case. You know, this year they probably have, have arrived to being playoff contenders a year ahead of what the front office projected for them. And there's a lot that you like about the team. They play excellent defense. Uh, you know, Cody Bellinger's having a great year, but their bullpen is a mess right now. Uh, you know, they gave up seven runs in six innings yesterday. They got a 4-6-80 ERA since September 2nd. Any postseason that includes the Cubs is a better postseason and, so I think that's another reason why I'm watching to uh, to see where they go. We're kind of rooting for the Cubs now in the National League here. we got a soft spot for them because just yesterday on the show, we had on Craig Breslow. Craig Breslow, former Red Sox reliever who won the World Series in 2013. He's got a, a childhood cancer research um, fundraiser wiffle ball tournament coming to Vermont on October 7th. So we had him on. We talked about that. But he's the assistant GM of the Cubs. So we got a little bit of a, of a soft spot for the Cubs here now. Well, and if you get a baseball executive who plays wiffle ball, I mean, come on. You can't go wrong. You know, I, I wish I could be there for that event. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, you know, as you know, he's considered to be one of the brightest minds in the game. And if at some point he winds up heading up a baseball ops, it wouldn't shock me. He's very, he's a very respected guy. And that, and I do feel like with, I mean, the, the, the Cubs are so loaded with New England and Red Sox connections between Breslow, and David Ross and Jed Hoyer, their head of baseball operations, uh, it does feel like it's, it's almost like a National League, uh, you know, brother organization. You know, it is interesting. I'll get you out of here on this because we asked, you know, Craig about this, about his transition from playing to the front office. And I was thinking a lot about the Alex Cora thing. He did say that when he went to the front office, there was a lot to learn and he didn't realize how much, how much there was to learn. You think Alex Cora could do it. Obviously he's got the managerial side down. So he's had some experience. He's not going right from playing to the front office, but would it worry you at all about Alex Cora making that transition right away? 
I, I would think it would be a concern that you would address. But, you know, Alex, as you know, uh, has served as the general manager of a couple of teams. So he's gotten some taste of that. Alex True. has a very close relationship with Scott Boris, who was his agent during his career. I think that's helped to give Alex a lot of insight in negotiations and value. I think he's a special talent evaluator. Uh, but the pitfalls are there. And the best example that I can give you in recent years was Derek Jeter going to the Marlins. Like he joins the front office and everyone thought that it was a, a great idea. But what was exposed right away was, is that, you know, while Derek, you know, was a phenomenal shortstop, he didn't have a lot of contacts in baseball. He didn't have a, you know, a, a Rolodex of, of people that he could call to help fill out his front office. And so he wound up bringing in a lot of Yankee people. Some of them, it didn't go so well. And then he was out after just five years. And they didn't make a lot of progress in his tenure. So I, I do think it's, there's some concerns. But I think Alex, because he was, uh, you know, sort of a fringy, you know, utility guy for some of his career and, and began to look at the, the sport from 30,000 feet uh, sooner than a lot of players do, I, I do think he's uniquely suited to potentially do a job like that at some point. Buster, you're the best. Next time we talk, we're going to be on the eaves of the end of the Red Sox season, which is hard to believe, but we still have plenty to talk about when it comes to the playoff races, and we'll be heading into the final weekend when we talk this time next week. So, Buster, we appreciate it. Enjoy this weekend's action. I'll probably need some Pepto-Bismol for the Mariners and Rangers, and we'll, uh, we'll talk in seven days. Well, good luck, Brady. I'm going to need it. Thank you very much. There goes Buster Olney, our ESPN MLB insider. A lot of react, lot to react to there. Buster thinks maybe Cora could do baseball ops and be a manager. I hate that. We're going to cut that sound up. We'll get to that in the 6 o'clock hour. Our six-pack of NFL questions is coming up next on WDEV AM and FM. Welcome back in, Brady Farkas Show, right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Thanks to Buster Olney for stopping by. That interview shortly will be available on our podcast feed, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. And I know Danny's working to cut up the sound there with Buster saying that he thinks Cora could maybe do both jobs, be the chief baseball ops guy and be the Red Sox manager. I completely disagree with that. So once we have the sound cut up, we'll play it back here, maybe like a half hour or so. We're going to do our six-pack of NFL questions here momentarily, but I was thinking in the commercial break. So I'm giving Danny a hard time, right, for not having seen the Travis Roy field yet or not having seen Little Fenway, Little Essex, Little Wrigley yet, um, or Little Fenway, Little Wrigley, and Little Field of Dreams over in Essex yet. So I'm thinking about some of the things I got asked to do as a producer when I first started out. And they're a little bit different here, the story I'm going to tell. But I think about Danny failing his first task as producer and having to go see this this complex. And I think about the first task that I got given as a producer that I also failed at. Again, it's different because this was an actual work-related task. Danny is more of a fun task that we're having a good time with. But, Danny, the first task I was ever given – so I was hired to be a – morning kind of massager of everything at the station, right? Like, I won't get into it too much because it's a little too in the weeds, but we were having all kinds of problems with our radio station in Albany, in New York, um, in the overnight period. And things were happening in the overnight, and we were missing commercial breaks, and then we were getting two commercial breaks. And by the time the morning started, the part that people really cared about, everything was thrown out of whack. So I was hired to come in and basically make sure that everything was running smoothly. So the only time, I I was only in from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m., and I basically never saw anybody because most people didn't even get in until like 9, and then when they get in at 9, it's like coffee, talk, meet up, no one coming to see me. And that was fine. I had no problem with that. 
but my only job was to really be the massager of this morning thing. And then all of a sudden, my boss, who is the program director and was the host of the afternoon show, he goes, hey, I've got a, a radio task for you to do here. I'm like, hey, great. Okay, cool. Like, let's get, let's get into it here. I'm excited. What do we got? He goes, I need you to get Malcolm Butler for us on the show. Uh, excuse me? Malcolm Butler, Super Bowl guy who should have won the MVP, who had the pick six against my Seahawks, who, or not pick six, who had the pick of the goal line that cost my Seahawks the Super Bowl. That Malcolm Butler? Yeah, that Malcolm Butler. I need you to get him on the show. How on earth would I go about getting Malcolm Butler on the show? He goes, figure it out. Figure it out. Like, you're in radio now. Figure out a way to get Malcolm Butler on the show. I can't do this. So I I whiffed horribly at getting Malcolm Butler on the show. And the reason why they wanted Malcolm Butler on the show was not just because he had helped seal the Super Bowl for the Patriots weeks earlier, but my station every year, that station in Albany, went to the Super Bowl every year, right? I've been four times, but those guys went every year, too. That's what got me into first going to the Super Bowl. So they go to the Super Bowl in 2000. It's the 15, it's the 14 season, I think the year of 2015 though, I think that's right. Um, and it's in Arizona, it's Seahawks and Patriots. No, was that? No, 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 it was maybe it's 15 years, 16, whatever, either way. They're in the Super Bowl, Patriots and Seahawks. And they catch up with Malcolm Butler. No one knows who Malcolm Butler is, but as they're walking around, they see Malcolm Butler, they interview him, they're like, hey, this is a guy who's a player, he doesn't play a lot, nobody's near him, we can have some fun with him. So one of our co-hosts says to Malcolm Butler, like, I think you're going to have a huge impact in the game. In fact, I think you're going to make a humongous play that's going to sway the game. And they're just having fun with him, right? Like, they're having fun with a guy who's a young guy who doesn't play a lot. And it turns out he has the interception that wins the Super Bowl. That helps seal the Super Bowl. So now they're like, hey, we called this. We called this week. We called this last week. We called this. We got to get this guy on. We got to have fun with him. Hey, remember us. We're the guys who predicted you were going to have a huge impact on the Super Bowl. And they asked me to get Malcolm Butler on the show. I have no idea what I'm doing. I've been at the station for maybe eight months, but I haven't done anything for these guys. I haven't done anything with the afternoon show. And I certainly haven't done anything about booking national guests. I do my little morning thing where I make sure everything works okay. And then... I also did some stuff of my own where I was interviewing a lot of local people, right, like high school soccer players and college field hockey coaches. I was living in my local bubble. I didn't know how to go about getting New England Patriots people on. So I reached out to the Patriots, and I hear nothing. I reached out to South Alabama, which is where Malcolm Butler went to college, I believe, and I hear nothing. And then it just fizzled out, and I was like, I was resentful that they had asked me to do this. I didn't look at it as an opportunity. I looked at it as being set up to fail, and I looked at it like they were too lazy to do it on their own. I didn't really realize what a producer did, and I was like, why am I doing this? You're the guys who want to talk to them. So I I was a bad mood about it, but I failed miserably at getting Malcolm Butler on the show. I have to say that when I've asked Danny to get people on the show, he's actually stepped up and been pretty good. So, Danny, you have a much better hit rate than I did at the beginning of my career. When I failed at getting Malcolm Butler, should have been Super Bowl MVP uh, on the show. To be fair, you haven't asked me to get Malcolm Butler or anybody like that. I have not asked you to get any New England Patriots. Usually I ask you to get people whose numbers I already have, not just random people I have to cold call and, and cold call giant organizations. That is a lot tougher, but you'd probably have a better success rate at it than I did too. Danny, if I had to ask you, and you can be honest, this is, right? We're, we're in a truth zone here. If I had to ask you what I'm like as a coworker or what my work ethic is like as a, a I say boss, but I, you know, I don't think of myself really as your boss, and I'm not really your boss, but just kind of as the, the leader of this show. How would you describe my work ethic or what it's like to work with me? Relentless. Nonstop. 
Well, I appreciate that. I think you're being honest and not just sucking up, and it actually plays into my point. I, I, you know, I, I think that I work hard. I think we work hard as a tandem. I think I put a lot of effort into this show, and I'm proud of the work that we put in. When I was a producer, when I was the producer back then when I got that first job, I was like the worst worker you could have ever imagined. I don't know how I didn't get fired from that job. I don't know how I made it. It was all probably only because I was on from six, I was there from six to 10 a.m. working at a time that no one else wanted to that I ever survived. I look back at my early career and I think to myself, Danny, how you are where you're also relentless. You are also hardworking and you're willing to do whatever's, whatever it takes. I was the worst worker in the history of radio. You wouldn't believe like what I was then to what I am now. Let me tell you, let me tell you the stories. So, I work from 6 to 10 a.m., and, you know, for half the year, right, it's pitch black at 6 a.m. So there's only, like, two people in the building at 6 a.m., right? There's the guy who's the producer of the country show at this station, and there's the person who's on the air at the rock show, who's at the rock station who's playing music. Nobody else is in there at 6 a.m. Everybody else gets in at 8.30, 9 o'clock. So from 6 to, to 8, I have, like, zero chance of seeing anybody other than those two people. I'm in the studio. It's pitch black outside. I know I'm going to see nobody. I'm wearing sweatpants and sweatshirts and sleeping pants and sandals and basketball shorts. I didn't care about my appearance. I wasn't going to talk to anybody. And literally, once I had made sure that the 6 o'clock, everything was right when 6 o'clock started, I, I put my head on the desk and I fell asleep for 10 to 15 minutes at a time. That was like, it was hard to sleep. In a studio, in an uncomfortable chair, when you're worried about if people are coming in. But I found a way to do it. Like, I was exhausted all the time when I had this job. Because I would stay up until 1 in the morning and watch Mariners games. And then i have to be up at 5 to get into the station. I was running on three and a half, four hours of sleep. And so I would get to work and I was exhausted. So once I made sure everything worked, from like 6 to 6.40, I could put, put my head down. Like, as long as we stayed on the air, that's all that mattered. And I wouldn't do this every day. But, like, there were more than enough times in that year that I had that job that I doze off for 10 to 15 minutes. And then when somebody actually – and then, like, I'd get a call from my boss once in a while, like, hey, we're off the air. What, what's going on? I'm like, I have no idea. I wasn't awake. And I have to fake it that I – oh, yeah, I, yeah, I slept in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, I see it. I'm on it right now. It was terrifying. I can't believe I did this. Like, you would never have thought that what I was then would have turned into what I am now just in a work ethic thing. I, I was horrible. I don't know how I ever survived in this business at the start, Danny. It doesn't fit your personality. I No, it doesn't. I think this is truthful, and this is one of the reasons why, and I'm not just blowing smoke. This is one of the reasons why I love Danny. Danny is really, and this is one the first thing I ever told Corm when he, we hired Danny was this. I go, I want to hire this guy because he's really good at being where he is. And what I mean is that, when Danny's producing, he focuses on producing, and he focuses on producing to the best of his abilities. And he doesn't think about other things. I always wanted to be on the air. Like, that's all I ever cared about. I wanted to be on the air. I wanted to talk. I wanted to have this show. So, yeah, I got my foot in the door as this morning guy. 
but I was resentful from day one that I'm not on the air. Or I was thinking, how can I get on the air? How can I scheme my way onto the air? Oh, someone's on vacation. Maybe I can fill it. How can I get myself a segment? What if I had a Saturday morning show? What if I did interviews for being online only? Like I was just like, how can I do talent-based things and get my voice and my opinions and my interviews out there that, like, I didn't want to do the 6 a.m. job. I had no interest in that. That's what they hired me for, but I had no interest in doing it. And I was – I. I wasn't bad at it because, you know, as long as everything worked, I was fine. And when it didn't work, I was able to make the appropriate phone calls. But I didn't want to be doing that job. And that's what, like, 85% of people who get into this business at the ground floor, they're thinking, like, okay, how can I move up and how can I move up as quick as possible? Danny's in the 15% that's like, no, 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 this is the job I have, and I'm going to do it to the best of my ability. I was, I was an awful guy to work with at the beginning. Like, for the first year and a half, I was absolutely terrible thinking about, okay, I'm above this, or how can I get above this, I should say, and how can I do more? I was, I was awful. I, I, I don't know how I survived. And Danny, I appreciate you saying, oh, relentless hard work or what, tireless, whatever, but it was not that way at the start because I just was, yes, I was dozing off for 10 minutes at a time in the morning, like, okay, I can, not off from 6 to 6.10, and then I'll make sure we're on the air. Okay, we are. Now 6.12 to 6.22, I can do the same thing. And I was like, I had to be fully on by 7 in case somebody walked in early, but horrible. Absolutely horrible. 802-585-3026. Glenn in Brookfield says, you're on a roll tonight, Brady. I love it. Danny loves it, too, I know. Danny loves when the show goes in zany directions, too. Usually, I used to be the guy who hated going on tangents, like, I was like, no, no, no. We got to break down the box score, the pitching matchup. We got to talk about this matchup and how the cover two works and what are we going to do against the two three zone and how are you going to break it down? That was me for the first five years of my career. It wasn't until recently that I opened up and started willing to have this kind of fun. I do think it provides something different to the show. I know there's always going to be a subset of people that like this better than the hardcore sports, and there's always going to be a subset of people who like the hardcore sports better than this. I try to blend the two of them, but I appreciate Glenn for saying that I'm on a roll. You've heard about my background today, how horrible I was as a, as a beginner in this business and how tough I probably was to work with, and then, uh, you know, about my, you know, my night in the slammer, which was really like 30 minutes in the slammer. But, again, I was innocent, and I was cleared because they knew they were wrong. But if you missed that, I can't go through it again. It was too, it's too – I can't do it as well as I did it the first time. Go find it on the podcast channel, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com. And Danny does a great job at putting the podcast up right after the show. Danny, week three starts tonight. We've got Giants and 49ers. I predict that will be an absolute bloodbath without Saquon. I think the Niners are going to win this game like 35-13. to 13. I don't even think it's going to be close. We do have a six-pack of NFL questions for us today. Danny, cue the music. I'm very, very resentful, by the way. I, I Not of this segment or of you, the listeners, or, or of Danny, or even myself. I love this segment. It's one of my favorite segments. But I always go to, to try to do some research for this segment, right? Like, I know a lot of what I'm talking about off the top of my head. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but it's like I watch games just like you do. I have an idea of storylines. And I could do this segment, I think, without any research. But I like to have research at my disposal. So I'm going through, like I always do, and I'm typing in, hey, week three NFL previews, week three NFL stats, week three, you know, storylines to watch. I just want to see kind of if what I've got is confirmed and what else I could find a little nugget. Nothing is out there on the internet anymore about just game previews. It's all about gambling lines. That's it. 
The only thing that anyone cares about is gambling lines. That's all there that matters. Are still, there are still a subset of people, Danny, that like to just watch the game for the game and want to talk about the matchups and want to hear about the storylines. I, look, I like gambling also. When I go home, I always go to the Saratoga Casino and Raceway. When I go visit my parents, I stop in at Rivers Casino. And I like to throw, you know, to, to bet with a hundred on, uh, on three card poker. I enjoy it. But I don't need every bit of NFL content to be, what do you like? Over or under 39 and a half? Patriots minus three or Dolphins plus three? Not interested in everywhere being that. Have all the gambling content you want, but don't take it, don't take away from the actual game knowledge, which some of us like to have. That said, question number one, Danny, from the big voice guy. The best game of the NFL weekend is? Best game of the NFL weekend for me? Chargers at Vikings. I think this game is going to be highly entertaining. It's also highly meaningful. We have two offenses that are supposed to be very, very prolific. We got Justin Herbert on one side. We got Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson, that connection on the other. Both of these teams can put up points. We saw the, the, the Chargers put up 34 in week one against the Dolphins. The Dolphins defense is getting some pretty good respect. Herbert got his big money. I love watching Herbert play. We're going to play it in the turf, indoors. It's going to get up and down. Jefferson, Cam Akers just got traded from uh, from the Rams to the Vikings. I don't know if he's going to play today, but that's going to add another element eventually to Minnesota's game. Remember, Alexander Madison is there. I, I just like this game, and it does have a lot of meaning. Both of these teams are 0-2, okay? And if you go to 0-3, we've talked about it when it comes to the Patriots, that's a death sentence. Your, your season is over if you are 0-3. Now, the Chargers will have a harder time at 0-3 because they play in the AFC West and they got to play Mahomes two times this year. The Vikings would have it easier given the NFC North doesn't look as good, although Green Bay is surprisingly, uh, you know, has played surprisingly well this season. They look better than we thought. Detroit's 1-1. One one. Minnesota would have an easier time at 0-3, but basically it's a death sentence if you go 0-3. Brandon Staley, also head coach to the Chargers, is fighting for his job. Okay, he's headed into, he's in year three. He's fighting for his job two games now, three games into the season. They blew how many games last year going forward on fourth down? Their defense continues to, to give up big chunk plays. I mean, 215 yards receiving to, to Tyreek Hill in week one. Are you kidding me? Brandon Staley's fighting for his job. The Vikings are fighting to keep their core together. If they lose and go 0-3, they very well might spin off Kirk Cousins to the Jets. We'll see what happens. Justin Jefferson, is, to my knowledge, has not signed a big long-term deal yet. Does going 0-3 change how they feel about him? We will see. I think this game is going to be highly entertaining, indoors, fast-paced. I can see it being 34-31. I can see it coming down to the wire. These are two teams fighting for their season and a head coach in Los Angeles that's fighting for his job. Den, uh, number two, Danny. The game that intrigues us most is... Game that most Denver at Miami. Okay, this is 0-2 Denver against 2-0 Miami. We had Harry Douglas of ESPN who earlier today said he thinks the Dolphins are the best team in the AFC. They've been on the road twice to start the season. This is their home opener, and they get the 0-2 now fighting for their season, Denver Broncos. There's a lot going on in this one. From the Dolphins' perspective, you've just gone across the country twice, right? You have zigzagged over to L.A. and beat the Chargers. You've gone up to New England and beaten the Patriots. Now you get to go home in front of your home crowd. How do you respond at home for the first time, in front of your fans for the first time, with the expectations now for the first time this season? 
fans talking about the Dolphins in the way that Harry Douglas is. Analysts saying that the Dolphins could get to the Super Bowl and could be a Super Bowl team. How do you respond to that? Do you take all of that and zoom forward and move to 3-0? and Or is it the classic trap game where you've got an 0-2 team coming in, you've had two big wins, you're finally at home, you're finally comfortable, and you end up on the wrong side of some listless and no-energy affair? I don't know. But the Dolphins have to respond to that. And for Denver, my goodness, Russell Wilson. I loved Russell Wilson for nine years in Seattle. I never thought I would see the day where I thought Russell Wilson was fighting for his NFL future. Russell Wilson is going to be a Hall of Famer, don't get me wrong, but he's fighting for his NFL future right now. I got I got audio up the wazoo of people saying Russ doesn't make it through the season. Russ isn't the starter by week 10. The expiration date is clicking on Russ right now, and the, the Broncos blew a 21-3 to lead last week against a commander's team that at best, okay, this game has the intrigue of Denver trying to save its season, of Russ fighting to save his career, of Sean Payton's magic seeing if it still exists, and it has the intrigue of the Dolphins being 2-0, see if they can carry the banner in the AFC and see if they can remain atop the AFC East. Danny, question three. The Bar Rescue Game of the Week is... Yeah, Bar Rescue Game of the Week, the worst game on the NFL schedule, the game that no one wants to watch and we'd rather watch reruns of Bar Rescue on the Paramount Channel or Spike or whatever it's called right now. I'm sorry to say this. It isn't the Bar Rescue Game of the Week for me, but it's the Bar Rescue Game of the Week nationally, and that's Patriots and Jets. The Patriots and Jets are the worst game nationally of the NFL schedule. We are going to watch it. We are going to talk about it. I certainly care about it a lot, and so do you. Nationally, this game means almost nothing to anybody. Nobody wants to watch Zach Wilson. Nobody wants to watch an 0-2 Patriots team with their lackluster talent on offense. Nobody wants to see Zach Wilson. Nobody wants to see the lack of explosive plays. Nobody wants to see two teams that are led by their defenses. A lot of people probably think this game could be 9-7 or 12-9, and people don't have interest in that. I even tried to go through and find other games that would be worse than this. I couldn't find one nationally. Okay, Texans at Jaguars means nothing to me, but a chance to watch Trevor Lawrence, the next golden boy in the NFL, that's appealing to a lot of people. Titans at Browns, I, that gave that one a run for its money too. I thought about picking that. That's two teams that are one and one though, two teams that are you know, possible playoff teams, fringy playoff teams. I think there's interest there. I thought about Colts-Ravens. I don't know the health of uh, of Anthony Richardson at this point, who left the game last week. I have been following his concussion protocol. If he doesn't play, that game might end up as the worst game of the week. But I think largely, nationally, the worst game of the week is the Patriots and Jets. An 0-2 team against a 1-1 Zach, Zach Wilson-led team, that game is not for a lot of people. Danny, question four. The player we want to watch most this week is... Justin Fields, only one answer to this question. I don't know if you've been following the drama that's been going on with the Bears right now, but the Bears are 0-2. The offense has been terrible. I mean, Fields is thrown, he's been sacked a bunch of times. He looks like do we completely have regressed from last year. His head coach is calling him out. He's calling his head coach out. Now the two are playing nice with each other. Who knows if it's real or not. All the spotlight and all the drama right now is on the Bears, and it's all on Justin Fields. They're 0-2, they're fighting for their season, 
And like Mac Jones, I've said Mac Jones is fighting for his NFL future. Justin Fields is fighting for his as well. He's in year three of his rookie contract. You've got to step up and prove that you're a $45 million a year player. And thus far, Justin Fields hasn't done it. I like Fields. I like his raw talent. I like his raw athleticism. I've said I would rather the Patriots have had him and drafted him than Mac Jones back in 2021. But this year, he's regressed. This year, he's gotten worse. And, oh, by the way, they're going up against a Kansas City Chiefs team that has Patrick Mahomes. No matter what Justin Fields does, it's going to be hard to beat that team in Arrowhead. Do I see the Chiefs losing to the Lions and Bears in their first two home games of the year? No, I don't. And if the Bears go 0-3, the drumbeat is going to continue to get louder on Justin Fields. Win or lose, he needs a huge performance. And thus far, he hasn't shown us that he's capable of it yet in 2023. Danny! The player with the most pressure this week is... Yeah, that's probably Justin Fields also, but for the sake of being different, I'm going to go with Joe Burrow. The Bengals are also 0-2. They're fighting to save their season. For as good as they are, the Bengals can't overcome 0-3, not in this AFC. Okay, I look, the Dolphins right now are two games up on them. Buffalo, I think, is going to be up on them still. We got the Chiefs, who are better than them. Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland. Cleveland's already beaten them. There's a lot of stuff happening in the AFC, Jacksonville, okay, Patriots. Like, There's a lot of teams that can get in the Bengals' way. For as talented as they are, for the pedigree that they have, there's a lot of teams that can get in their way. They also can't come overcome 0-3. Now, I don't know if Burrow's going to play because of his calf injury, but if he does, he is completely under the gun. Hey, He is completely under the gun. The, the, we have anointed him as the as the golden boy of the NFL. In addition to Trevor Lawrence, we've anointed uh, Joe Burrow as the second coming, as the guy who can rival Patrick Mahomes, as the guy who can be the foil to Mahomes. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here with Cincy. You need Joe Burrow to be great if he plays. You need Joe Burrow to be great if he plays. And, well, he's not going to have the haters coming after him in the way that Justin Fields would. We can't see a quarterback that's been to the Super Bowl on a team that's a Super Bowl favorite go down to 0-3. I just, we cannot see that. We cannot see that. Danny, number six. The most amazing NFL stat of the weekend is this one about Joe Burrow. Okay, Joe Burrow last year had at least one pass of 15 plus air yards. Okay, in every single game. All that means is like, Danny, it's not like he throws it seven yards and the receiver runs for eight. It means he actually threw the ball. 15 yards or more in the air. The ball traveled 15 yards or more. So you think about a big pass play down the field, something that's going to end up in a huge game. Joe Burrow had one of those at least in every game last season. This year, he's 0 for 12 on passes 15 yards or more down the field. 0 for 12. It leads to a more conservative, more methodical, more slow-moving Bengals offense. We talk about the Patriots having to dink and dunk their way down the field. Well, that's what the Bengals have had to do because Joe Burrow is 0 for 12 on getting the ball down the field. 0 for 12. I'm thinking about a couple of other things here that are kind of on my list here. There are other things I've thought about here. Um, Nothing really stuck out above that. Nothing stood out above that. Joe Burrow, 0 for 15, or 0 for 12 on passes 15 yards or more. 585, 3026. You can get in. 
with your thoughts on the six-pack of NFL questions. Again, at that number, 802-585-3026. I read a story, Danny, on the afternoon news service that gave me deja vu. It was a national story. It gave me deja vu. I'm going to tell you why on the other side of this break next on DEV. Now it's back to the Brady Parker Show on WDEV-AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Parker Show right here on WDEV-AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. Danny is still tripping from the fact that I was a lazy worker at the beginning of my career. You can't get over it. No, really. I, it, it just doesn't I just, make sense to me. I was awful. And I'm talking like I would have the studio pitch black. It'd be pitch black outside. I'd be in sleeping pants and a hoodie. I'd have my hood up. I'd try to hide my face as much as possible so I could put my foot, or put my head down. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. And it wasn't until, it wasn't until about a year into that job that I got really hard working because I started to get some on-air opportunities. And then I became kind of the guy that you know, Danny, when I first got to Vermont, and I had a lot more ownership of the station and a lot more to do. But, yeah, it took me about a year to get into it. You know, now, again, I think I'm proud of my work ethic, and I'm proud of what you and I put into the show. But it took a while for me to get there, no doubt about that. Um, I had a bit of deja vu earlier today. Danny, I read a story in the final business report of the afternoon news service that gave me deja vu. And I don't think I've ever done this before, bring a piece of the afternoon news service, actual news, into this show. But I, I have to play this for you. So the story came from CNN Business. It said, McDonald's is being sued over a hot coffee spill. It says, this time a San Francisco location is being accused of serving a, quote, scalding cup of coffee with an improperly attached lid which allegedly resulted in the coffee pouring out on plaintiff Mabel Childress's body and causing severe burns after she tried to drink it. So the lawsuit says that the woman is suffering from physical pains, emotional distress, and other damages, and the restaurant's negligence is a substantial factor as well, says the restaurant refused to help her. Now, first off, I'm not trying to make light of the situation. I hope that this, move, I hope that this woman is okay. I hope she doesn't have... Severe burns on her body. Okay, I hope she's. I hope she's fine. I hope she will be healthy. That said, Danny, have you ever seen Seinfeld? Not what you're trying to talk about here, but yes, I've okay. seen some Seinfeld. Okay. Well, I wrote my honors thesis in college on Seinfeld. Like I've wow. kind of graduated now to like knowing everything about the Big Bang Theory. Like that's like the more modern show that I know everything about and can watch over and over and over again. But I could still tell you about just about every episode of Seinfeld. I could quote it ad nauseum. I could tell you all the plot lines. I love Seinfeld, even though I don't watch it regularly anymore. There is an episode where this exact same thing happened. They wrote this story like 25 years ago in Seinfeld, 30 years ago in Seinfeld at this point. Kramer, a lot of you will remember this if you're Seinfeld fans. Kramer wants a cafe latte. Like he got really into cafe lattes. And he went to the movies, and they wouldn't let you bring in your own outside beverages, right? Like, they wouldn't bring in – you couldn't bring in your outside beverages to the movies. Sounds sounds right. And so he tried to sneak in his own cafe latte. And he had it in his shirt, like underneath his shirt, and he tripped getting to his seat, and he spilled it all over himself. 
and he was suing the coffee company for a faulty lid in the same way that this woman is suing McDonald's and alleging they have a faulty lid. So here's Kramer on the show with his lawyer, Jackie Childs, talking about this story. It's the exact same thing as the story I just read. So, then what happened? Well, uh, I was trying to get to my seat, and I had to step over someone, and uh, I kind of got pushed, and it spilt on me. Was there a top on it? Yeah. Uh, did you put the top on, or did they put the top on no. for you? They put the top on, and they made the top. You didn't make the top, did you? <laughs> Susan, I want you to go down to Java World. Get me a cafe latte with a top. We're going to run some tests on that top. All right, Danny, you can cut it now. But that's the exact same story. That is the exact same story written 30 years ago by Larry David and company for Seinfeld. The exact same story playing out there i i mean i would like i in my mind when i saw that story when i read it i couldn't help but smile not because the woman suffered injuries again i hope she's okay but because i've seen that before and that is where i've seen it before except it was java world not mcdonald's such a kramer thing to do i love and uh and so here's the other thing too kramer was going to win that case and he was going to get millions of dollars from the coffee company but instead, he accepted a deal without his lawyer knowing for free uh, cafe lattes for life. So he passed up on millions of dollars for free cafe lattes for life at any of their stores. And he ends up then getting hooked on cafe lattes and, you know, having like 10 of them a day and then being wired the rest of the episode. He's so not that, wired enough already. No, so instead of, uh, instead of the millions of dollars, he ended up with free coffee. That was it. Free coffee from Java World. And uh, there was also another time where he was smoking, and he didn't, he, he, you know, he was smoking, and his face was getting all craggly and crinkly, and he'd been exposed to a lot of smoke. And he was trying to sue the tobacco companies. And instead of millions of dollars, he accepted a deal where he would become like the Marlboro man. They put him, they put his face on smoker on a tobacco billboards in New York city. And that Jackie Childs was also his lawyer then. And Jackie Childs said, I will never work with you again because he cost him millions of dollars again. So there you go. Uh, Marion Randolph says, I'm enjoying the stories and your sports show today. Back in the day, we would have called you a slacker. I absolutely was a slacker. Like I would, <laughs> I was a slacker when it came to that radio job. I was always a hard worker. I was always somebody that worked hard. I've always had this work ethic, but it's always been about things that I wanted to do, right? When I have a goal, when I have a dream, I like to think that I go and chase it appropriately. I did not want to be the 6 a.m. morning button presser who made sure that everything was good running on three and a half hours of sleep. I didn't want to do that. So I didn't have the desire to do it. I was horrible. Again, I... And I didn't realize, and this is my biggest thing I ever tell anyone about this business in particular. The biggest piece of advice that I can give you in this business is to not ever think that you're above something. Right? Like, we all want to have this job. Right? Like, this job and this platform. We all want to be Colin Coward. We all want to be Dan Patrick. But in order to do that, you really got to work your way up the chain. You got to start at the bottom. I didn't know that. And so when I had to start at the bottom, I was very, very resentful of that. And I wasn't appreciative of the opportunity. I wasn't grateful to just be in the building. I was like, when am I going to get my shot and let me count down to that? 
Okay, and, and that was it. I was very, very self-serving. I thought that it was better than I was. I thought that I was ready before I was. You know, we're now, Danny, we're, we're like nine years or so into my radio career. We're probably seven years into my career where I've been, you know, prominently featured on the air in some way. It's taken a long time to build to this, to a show that I think I'm pretty proud of. But I look back and I'm like, man, I, I never would have gotten here if I hadn't done all the grunt work on the front side. And at the time that I was going through it, I didn't recognize it was going to be valuable and I was very, very resentful of it. That's why I've said I like Danny so much because he's good at what he's doing when he's doing it. Like Danny is aspirational, right? Like Danny has goals and he wants to hit them and I believe he's working towards them. But when he's doing a job in the moment, he's not thinking about that stuff. And that's all I would think about. And it, it consumed me to the point I was not good at the first jobs I was hired at. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. Um, Danny, let's step aside quickly. I want to get to what Buster Olney had to say about Alex Cora earlier. Because I love Buster. He's one of the best guys we have on this show. Completely disagree with him on this front. We'll tell you what he had to say next on DEV. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas show right here on WDEV, AM and FM, WDEVradio.com. No Red Sox baseball today. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. And then Eye on the World with John Batchelor. Last hour, we spoke to Buster Olney of ESPN. Buster's with us every single Thursday. And we talked about the Red Sox firing of High and Bloom. And we talked about where the Red Sox go from here. And Buster came up with the idea that maybe Alex Cora could fill both roles next season, Danny. I think you absolutely could have someone be a manager and oversee baseball operations as long as you were to get the appropriate help for that person in the front office. In other words, if you could, you could have Alex oversee the whole baseball ops and, and uh, while managing the team, but have someone else be making the calls to other teams uh, about possible trades and then have Alex be the one who makes the decision about whether to do it. I, I, I love Buster. He, he is, so gracious with his time. He comes on every week, and he comes on for free. Like, full disclosure, Buster comes on for free. He does not get paid to come on this show. I, I don't know that I've ever disagreed with him more than that right there. I want nothing to do with that setup of Alex Cora being the GM, the chief baseball officer, and this team's manager. Danny, aren't we trying to get Bill Belichick to stop doing both jobs? Why do we think that? Because Bill Belichick is great at one and not great at the other. I, I've talked a lot about this lately. The idea of being good at both and not great at either, that's what this reeks of to me. Alex Cora, if he was doing both jobs, might be able to be good at both. I need him to be great. I need organizational greatness. I need the people in their jobs in Red Sox land to be great. I can't have somebody who has two roles who's good, not great. I can't have it. I don't want it. It doesn't work for Belichick. We're trying to take away power from Belichick. I don't think it would work for Alex Cora as well. It's too hard. The season is too long. Look, Bill Belichick has 17 games to worry about. 17 games. And he can't seem to handle the general manager duties that really he has a lot of time to do, right? Like, He's not great at the draft. Why? Because he's probably focusing on the games, not watching college football every day. Okay, like it's too it's too hard. 
There are 162 on-field baseball games for Alex Cora. Do you think that he can go and dominate the general manager position with 162 days that he is dealing with on-field coaching? Oh, plus the other 40 for spring training. Oh, plus the other potential 28 to 30 for the World Series. We're looking at on-field days if you win the World Series. We're looking at on-field straight through from February 15th until November 1st, practically. We are looking at eight and a half months that you are supposed to be committed to an on-field coaching role, an on-field managerial role, managerial role. I don't believe that you can be a great executive while also having to do eight and a half months worth of work on-field. And then do you even have the mental bandwidth to do the job? Do you have the mental bandwidth to do both jobs, to be plugged in in that way? It's no knock on Alex Cora. I know I wouldn't have it. To be a major league executive at that level is an all-encompassing 24-hour-a-day job, right? It's fielding phone calls at 7 in the morning, fielding the phone calls at 2 in the, at 2 a.m., and now you're asking a guy to be on the plane all the time, to travel, to, to manage the clubhouse, to do the on-field coaching stuff. It's too hard. And then Buster says, oh, well, what if you got him the appropriate help you could do it? All that tells me is you have too many cooks in the kitchen, right? Because if I'm if I'm Alex Cora and I need three people to help me with the back end stuff, how long until the three people start saying, well, why can't I do this job? And now there's infighting between you and those people. Or there's infighting between those people about which one comes to be your number one assistant. I don't have any interest in this. This reeks to me of too many cooks in the kitchen, of, of Alex Cora having too much power, of him not being able to give his full attention to either job. And then, Danny, let's also not forget there is the notion of do you want to be on the field with players but also be the guy who's deciding their fate, who just traded their buddy, who just released their roommate, who just released the guy or cut the guy that came they came up with, I I would not want that job if I were Alex Cora either, right? You have plausible deniability when you're the manager, right? High and Blue might go to Alex Cora and say, hey, what do you think of reliever Joe Smith? And Alex Cora might be able to say, eh, you know, don't don't love him, would be okay without him. But then when Joe Smith gets cut, Alex Cora is at least able to sit in front of the media and his team and say, yeah, you know, that that's a front office decision. Couldn't do that anymore. So if Alex Cora traded Alex Verdugo this offseason and then has to go to spring training and look get sideways looks from guys who are close with Verdugo, that's not an element that works for every for anybody. If the next guy comes in and trades Alex Verdugo, Alex Cora can sit here and say, hey, we love the kid. He worked hard for us. Ultimately, that's a decision that was made up the food chain. Next question. I don't think that's a real healthy situation for Alex Cora to be in. I don't think it's a winning situation for the Red Sox, and I don't have any desire to have that be the case. I need organizational stability. I need, if Alex Corris is going to be the manager, I need him to be on par thought-wise with the next guy. And, yes, having him do the job would put him on par with the next guy because he'd be the next guy. But it's not I, to me, I, don't want, I do not want it to happen like this. This is not something I'm interested in, okay? And... I'm trying to think of other scenarios where a guy's been a head coach and GM. I know that it's existed. Other I sport, re- but Stan Van Gundy yeah. didn't work. Okay. For the Pistons. I, I, I don't recall it. In, uh, like I knew, I don't recall it in baseball, but I know it's happened. Danny points out Stan Van Gundy 
with the Pistons. I do believe it's more prevalent in the NBA for some reason. Is Tom Thibodeau also, was he also the guy, whether it was in Minnesota or with the Knicks, was he also the guy making the personnel decisions? I think he might have been. I also I'm gonna have to, didn't really work. Well, they have gotten to the playoffs at least. But um, I'm trying to think of guys who are also, I mean, Bill Parcells has done it. Mike Holmgren did it. Uh, looks like Mike Shanahan did it. Jimmy Johnson did it. Butch Davis in Cleveland, that didn't work. Nick Saban did it in Miami, that didn't work. Um, this is a rare thing, and I don't know that I've ever seen it in in the in Major League Baseball. I wouldn't want it to happen. Um, Doc Rivers with the Clippers, Danny, was head coach and senior vice president of basketball operations. You said you had Stan Van Gundy. That's there uh, as well. I mean, Doc Rivers this is kind of the classic example. The Clippers were really good, but they could never get over the hump. Maybe because Doc had his foot in both camps, it's really hard to be good at both jobs. And you're always going to come up short somewhere just a little bit. Uh, Thibodeau was that in Minnesota and got fired Minnesota? Okay. Minnesota. After he was with Chicago and went to Minnesota, I think that's right. Um, yeah. So it's not many. It's not something I need to see for the Red Sox either. That was a fun show today. It was a very fun show today. Thanks to all of you for being a part of it. You can check out the full show podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com. Danny does a great job of getting those podcasts up within 15 minutes of every show ending. You can always listen to everything on demand there. You can also stream us live at WDEVradio.com also. Thursday night football tonight between the Giants and 49ers. I've got 31 or 35-13 is the final. I don't think this game is close without Saquon. I hope for all our Giant fans, listeners, that it, that it is close. I hope that the Giants can pull it out. I would like to see the Giants beat the 49ers, but I just don't think it's in the cards. That defense is too good. That offense is too well-oiled, and the Giants are too beat up at their best player with uh, with Saquon out of this game. Thanks to Danny. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Buster. We'll have Football Talk Friday with Phil Perry tomorrow on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV.